If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It's kind of the orphan of English history. And yet, it was the greatest insurrection or rebellion per capita that we've ever had in this country, ever had in this country. It came within a hair's breadth of toppling the Plantagenets. That was Melvin Bragg discussing his new novel about the Peasants' Revolt. When people say he doesn't have blood on his hands, he has a lot of blood on his hands. And I think, you know, it was absolutely crucial in changing post-war history. And that was Andrew Loney on a member of the Cambridge spy ring, Guy Burgess. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our third podcast of November 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. First up this week is author and broadcaster Melvin Bragg. Well known in the UK for his TV and radio work, including hosting BBC Radio 4's In Our Time. Melvin's most recent book is Now is the Time, a novel that focuses on the events of the 14th century Peasants' Revolt. He spoke to our digital editor, Emma McFarnan. So perhaps you could start off by telling us what motivated you to write Now is the Time. Why did you choose the Peasants' Revolt as your subject matter? I don't quite know, to tell you the truth. I read history at school intensively with an exceptionally good history teacher and again at Oxford University I read history and I've read history steadily ever since. Um, And world history, but particularly British history. And the Peasants' Revolt never really figured. It's kind of orphan of English history. And yet it was the greatest insurrection or rebellion per capita that we've ever had in this country, ever had in this country, it came within a hair's breadth of toppling the Plantagenets, the form of the young king and the whole court, and it aimed at destroying the wealth uh, and uh, supremacy of the church. It was radical, it was communistic, it was communal as well. It prefigured the uh, French Revolution, 1789, Everything was in place in 1381. Uh, Those involved were magnificent figures, whichever way you look at it. Uh, John Ball, the preacher, um, who I think is the first preacher in English uh, history whose uh, sermons in English have been preserved, scraps of, substantial scraps of them. Walter Tyler, what Tyler, who led this army, he turned it into an army which did things that no armies had done. I mean, this man assembled within, with, with help, assembled armies which 
uh, got into London, which nobody got into, which got into the white, got into the Tower of London, which is unthinkable, which forced the king to meet them three times, as it were, face to face. It was a powerful, big movement, full of ideas, full of possibilities for upturning the state, triggered by the poll tax, triggered by what people thought of was an unjust tax. But that was the trigger for a lot of things that were lying around. The background to it was the Black Plague and the Black Death, which started in 1348, but was coming back every few years. It was coming back again in 1381. People thought it would go on forever. People, some people thought it was the end of the world. So there's all that there and much else. And um, I just started to toy around with it. Um, I did a radio program about John Ball. I did a television program about John Ball. I did essays about John Ball and about Walter Tyler, and I just thought, well, I'd written Credo, which was set in the 7th century, um, when England, you could say, in a way, began to be England with the Kingdom of Northumbria, which extended its writ over most of what we now think of as England, and the Lindisfarne Gospels began to be, to say this is what English could do. This is very elliptical, but, but, uh, uh, and there's a feeling of us starting to cohere, Alfred the Great took it on, of course, but see there, and laws and so on. And then I did Made of Buttermere, which is another great period in thought, where reason is against nature, and you had that with, uh, with Wordsworth, and particularly in the Lake District and Coleridge, and this woman at the heart of it, the beauty, the lakes, who seemed to prove that, uh, that nature alone could, 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 could provide moral good and... You didn't need the sages, you immerse yourself in nature and somehow by doing that you would know what was good and what was bad. You didn't need to read Old Testamental proverbs and so on. So I did that um, and I thought this somehow fits in. I don't, can't quite work out why, but it's part of Britishness because the, the terrible thing is, that, not the terrible thing, the fact is that it failed. On the other hand, uh, <laughs> Things move slowly. Uh, over several hundred years, a lot of it has succeeded. You know, people are not in the trodden down, surf, almost slave way that they were then by a long way. Various things have been achieved. Anyway, one way or another, I got involved and I started to write it. And the documents are good for that time and they're copious, which is great. Uh, there's some good books on it. Uh, uh, I didn't read any novels that have been written about it, but there's some good history books about it. Dan Jones is good, and various people are good. I didn't read Julie Barker's book because it came out too late. I'd got enough stuff by then. Uh, and I came out, but I was, I was, I was, by that time I was having a real problem. And the real problem was how to turn these real people, in inverted commas, well, not real people, real people who were in the document, into fictional characters. Um, and the... Evidence about them was often elusive and often contradictory. Quite a lot of evidence about Richard II, of course. Quite a lot of evidence about uh, John Ball, but even that, uh, a bit of evidence about Walter Tyler, and then, of course, plenty of evidence about Archbishop of Sudbury, about the Earl of Salisbury, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's a big cast in the book, but the principal characters are, are uh, King Richard II, the 14-year-old king, uh, Walter Tyler, who I saw as a soldier. There was a reference in one of the chronicles that he had fought in France, so I used that and said, well, yeah. And even the chronicles at the time were saying, were marvelling at the way this was organised. So I thought, he's got to know something. He can't just... And so I sent him to France. Um, beforehand, I did a backflash. 
or even what they used to call a flashback. (laughs) 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 And and I built on him, and he was a tiler, so he was a substantial artisan. This was a skilled uh, and not very common craft, and therefore he would employ men. And where did he get that from? Did he inherit it? So I could build around him, just imagine and think around him. He came from Colchester, which is one of the, not only one of the largest, but one of the most progressive towns in this country. I mean, I hate, I don't want to feel, and I didn't mention this much because I'd feel, oh, they're saying he's being politically correct, but there was a woman's movement in, in, in Colchester in the 14th century. I didn't mention it. It sounds, oh, he's just having us on. But I did mention the fact that women took part in the, in the rebellion, the revolution. There's a very good uh, American uh, uh, study showing that at least 4,000 women were involved in it. And out of that, I got this character, Joanna Ferris, who was a real person, but she was so vivid, I could go in all directions, sorts of directions. She was wonderful. Um, I suppose the biggest discovery for me was Richard II's mother, uh, the Princess of Wales, Joan, who'd been married to the Black Prince, among others. Uh, she was the richest woman in the kingdom, and perhaps the richest woman in Europe. She had her own diplomatic service. She was called the Virgin, Virgin of Kent, and the beauty, even though she had, had delivered seven children. Um, she was extraordinary power. And I began to notice, when I was mapping it out, that he was always going back to her. He was going to her palace, and not his own, especially in the critical times. She came to him at some of these crunch meetings. Um, and I thought, she's... She's, she's the biggest influence. And I just found out more and more about her, her excessive wealth, her wonderful uh, jewellery collection, which I found out about, which is great. Uh, and also, she was supported Wycliffe and the Bible in English, quite to the contrary to what you would think. Because Wycliffe books, the, the establishment hated the Bible in English. Very soon, after 1381, it was made illegal. It was already disapproved of. They wanted to keep in Latin for reasons that uh, I could go into. It's because it's a big, partly because it's a, a language that most people don't know. So if you hold that, you hold a lot of power. Um, but she supported them, um, actively supported them. I think she saw them, my view is that she saw them as the coming men. She thought England was becoming English. Uh, and Chaucer, she knew Chaucer was writing. And so I think she wanted her son to be aligned with the coming men. That's what I think. On the other hand, she probably believed it. So she was fascinating, uh, and I brought... So by the time I'd got all that, but I had, it was obstinately... It was very obstinate. I was looking at this damn thing, and it was really obstinate. It wouldn't turn into fiction. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'd got this great big cauldron, and I'd put all the bits in I was supposed to put in, and I'd turn the heat into exactly the right level, and I put my ladle in, and it didn't taste like fiction. It wasn't fiction. So I wrote eight drafts of that book. Yes, it's more than I've ever written. And the, the task was to turn it into fiction. And that's the real trick, it seems to me, everybody has different ideas, that you take historical people, even if they're historical from your own life, but let's leave that to one side. But somehow or other, you've got to turn them into fiction so people believe in a, fictive, a fictional and imaginative world, but you've got to do it in such a way that they're real people. So you're taking A, turning into B, so there'll be supercharged A. And um, that's, that took a lot of... And I, I sent the novel off, I think, after version six, to my editor, Carol Walsh, who is a terrific, wonderful editor. We all say that, but 
but quite rightly. And she sent back a, a critique, which was critical. But she said, fine, let's go ahead. Uh, let's do it. And put out a schedule. And I think I was walking, I know I was walking somewhere in London. I walk an awful lot around London. And I certainly went into a panic. And I thought, it isn't right. I want it back. <laughs> I'd had an advance by then. So I rang up Vivian Green. I said, I want it back. They can have the, uh, tell, tell them, don't, I don't want the five pounds. I just want the book back. <laughs> <laughs> True. So I got it back. And then I really went in at a different level for two months and got very tired. And it was over Christmas, New Year. I wasn't very well anyway. I got a very, one of those dry curls. I just was driving into it. And then I thought, I've got it. I mean, whatever it is, it's what I want it to be. This is what I want it to be. And so I thought, okay, I've written a work of fiction about this. I've also been true to the history. I haven't been over-reliant on the history. I brought in plagues and disasters and ideas and the church and the state, and I've got these real people who are up there up front. So that's the story of how it came written. If I could have a copy of that, I can do that as my speech. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I haven't written my speech yet. <laughs> Absolutely perfect. <laughs> Can you send me a little copy, please? Yes, absolutely. No problem at all. And um, so, I guess, how historically accurate then would you say it would be, given the challenges you've outlined? Well, historical accuracy is is uh, a concern, but it's not a primary concern. Mm-hmm. On the whole, the block things are true, very completely. This, you'll find this is where the revolt against the poll tax started, in this village at this time with these people. You'll find this is how the movement to, to uh, uh, march against the poll tax developed in these villages, in these towns, in these weeks, that's all true. There was a person called what, Tyler. There, was, there were other people, their name, in the back of the book, I say, these are real people, these are completely imaginary. These things happened. They did march to Canterbury, they did march to Southwark, they did... Uh, they did force the bridge down, they did capture Rochester Castle, all this is true. They did get into the White Tower, they did meet the king, but they failed to meet the king. They wouldn't, the king wouldn't meet them down river at, uh, let us say, Greenwich around that area. But they forced him to meet them uh, in London twice. That's all true. Um, Sudbury was executed, the way he was executed. Sudbury was chancellor, uh, as chancellor as well as archbishop. Um, there were brothels in Southwark. The brothels were, were Flemish women. Uh, the mayor of London owned the brothels. Well, um, before uh, the people I name in the city were were people who were running the city at that time. How powerful it was. Um, the numbers numbers games are always different in, in difficult in medieval history because. Some people say 100,000, some people say 20,000. You think, hold on, there's no way I can juggle with that. So you, you make, so I, I'm either vague or general, but I, I that. Um, uh, I make up a lot of the inner thoughts of Richard and uh, of everybody, actually. That's my job. I say interiority is original. Uh, completely. I mean, nobody knows what they think is a work except me in the novel. <laughs> um, I feel like one or two of the histories I read, they like to say Richard was melancholy and all the rest of it. That day. I thought, they don't know that. They're making it up, so they're, they're trying to be novelists. That's fine, that's a compliment. <laughs> so a lot of it is accurate. Somehow, it is, it is, there is a, let's take Tyler. There is a reference to the fact that Tyler perhaps fought in France. It would seem to me that coming from that part of the world, this is where they hired, easiest to hire the soldiers. 
uh, and what he did subsequently. But the odds are he went across to France when he was young. The odds are, so I put him in Poitiers, and I invented a place for him in the Battle of Poitiers where he, he fell, he became, he idolized the Black Prince, um, who rewarded him in a way that became significant as the book went on. That's all made up. Um, uh, but you see, when Catherine, when Joan is coming back from Canterbury, having gone to pray that she kind of like her son, you know, uh, and the, uh, the, the rebels surround her carriage and Tyler clears them away and lets her go ahead because she is the Black Prince's widow. That, there's, accurate, there's substance for that. So, so it's, like, it's that sort of thing. And in terms of the, the revolt itself, do you think it's accurate to describe it as the peasants? No, it's not a peasant's revolt. That's complete. I mean, partly because the, a lot of the um, chroniclers were French and they loosely used the word les peasants and there were a great number of people with pitchforks. But a pitchfork's a dangerous weapon. I mean, pitchforks quite long. Uh, you re- well reach across this table. In the hands of a very strong man, if you had a pitchfork and you shoved it to somebody's throat, they'd have to have excessive protection around their throat to stop it going in. So it, it's not all that silly an implement. And besides which, there were bowmen, and they captured arms from the places they took. I made that up. There's no evidence that they did. But I think, well, of course they did. They took Rochester Castle, uh, and of course they took all the bows and arrows and swords they could get hold of. They went to Canterbury, uh, the, 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 the uh, Bishop's Palace. They took every bit of armament they could get hold of. They did that all along the way. So as they were going along the way, they were more heavily, heavily armed and so on. As far as I can, could discover, um, John Ball's father was born in a place called Pelham and came to Colchester as some sort of lowly tradesman. And John Ball was picked up as a bright boy and sent to the local abbey and then from there, as the bright boys were, were sent up to York to be finished off as a priest and he kind of did finish him off. I hinted a bad experience there but I don't want to develop it. And then he, he never really ran a parish after that. He was a hedge priest and excommunicated three times, once by the King of England, Christ, and the Archbishop. So he was, he was a menace to them. Um, you could perhaps call him a peasant, but not really. Walter Tyler was an artisan, Walter Tyler. A lot of the other people around him were artisans. There were priests in the thing. There were one or two gentlemen, as they were, Chaucer would have called them. Um, one or two ex-soldiers, there were quite a few, and there were aldermen from Colchester. I mean, these were solid men who were used to passing laws and administering towns and keeping law and order. These are not sort of... And there were a lot of the populace who came along, who joined it as they went along. But I think the Peasants' Revolt has always been regarded as, oh, let's dismiss it, it's just those peasants. In fact, I suppose the way that peasants came into our language as a derogatory word stems from the Peasants' Revolt. You mentioned earlier the Black Death. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this historical context in terms of the the three poll taxes being imposed, the wars... Well, the Black Death came in 1348, and... It is estimated that it took 47.2% of the English population. But just imagine, in London we've got, say, 8 million people, 4 million people would be killed. Well, it's difficult to imagine. But that is, and these are very serious historians, so we're talking about... And then he kept coming back, never as virulently, but bad enough, again and again and again, I think about five times, I haven't got my notes with me, but it came back in 1381. 
uh, and it was well, it was the it was a sort of it was a huge fact in people's lives. When was it coming back? Would it ever go away? Who had got it? Oh Christ, it's come back to Wales or come back to, to the seaports. Oh God, let's get out of there. Uh, it, so it was around all the time. And uh, so it must have been a terrible thing all the time. It's like a sort of pogrom from God, unceasing. So that was a context. The poll tax was the king, young king, was in the hands of these and the peasant, the, the, the rebels were right. The king was in the hands of avaricious, uh, deceitful, um, overprivileged advisers who thought that king, Eng, mostly French Bay, French, French born, who basically thought England was a place where they just got the money to go and fight their more or less private wars and get more loot to add to their substantial holdings. Um, and they couldn't get enough tax the way they were raising it. The aristocracy wouldn't pay anything because they said, we pay by fighting. The monks wouldn't pay anything because they said, we pay by praying. Um, Parliament had said, we've given enough, the commons uh, are Parliament. And so they went for working people. Uh, and they put it up substantially. Again, it's in the books, about four or five hundred percent in one go for a household. Well, it was intolerable. And also, they'd recently been taxed, so they didn't want to be taxed again. They didn't want to be taxed again in this way. Quite a few of them said yes, but th there was an obstinate group of people, starting in Essex, who said no. And then it rolled on, like these things do, I'm told. It just got going, and as it were, you could say, the grievances of decades became part of the... It stopped being just about the poll tax. It became about the way of life. It became about, do we want villains? Do we want uh, this people in chains, as it were? Do we want people with no rights? Do we, want, do we want, no, we don't. So it grew from that, but the poll tax was a big factor. And um, you said earlier that ultimately it failed. Do you th what, what can you say, what would you say the revolt achieved? Well, there are certain historians who say it didn't achieve much. The waters closed over and uh, Richard II said that, uh, you know, I've got the quote, uh, bad as it was, it'll be bad as your condition was before, it will be much worse now. And um, it didn't stop there being revolts. Um, there was a Jack Cade revolt later, admittedly 70 years later. You could say it was a symptom of what was possible to happen in this country, but it didn't lead to reforms. In fact, it led to further repression. I just think it was a magnificent bonfire in the dark of the Middle Ages, and, um, and then people began to look back to it, particularly in the Civil War. Whenever, in the Civil War, they looked back, and in the uh, Revolutionary Wars with France, they looked back on it, and in the 19th century, the Chargers and so on looked back on it, so it was a symbol, but it didn't achieve anything at the time, except its own defeat, in a way, it ate its own children. In terms of your work, you've written more than 20 novels, uh, presented acclaimed television, radio shows. What, what's drawn you back to historical fiction? I don't know, as I said at the beginning of this. I just... It wouldn't go away. And I think when you write fiction, uh, what won't go away? It won't go away for a purpose. It's sort of saying, you just nagged away. I, mean, I wonder what really happened. 
And, and you, that's about what it is. You just think, um, uh, like when I did the Cumbrian Church, the first one in the 60s, it wouldn't go away for years, and I hadn't gone into it deeply enough. So when I did the soldier's return and crossing the lines and um, uh, soldier's return, son of one crossing the lines, it wasn't a rewrite, but it was going back to exactly the same area because it wouldn't go away that I'd done that when I was very young, well, young enough, and um, it hadn't, I hadn't got as far as I wanted to get. So I thought, well, better people than me have rewritten stuff. But anyway, it won't be the same because I'm older and it's different. So, so I went back. This thing just kept nagging away. I mean, there's no... I don't anticipate any commercial success. There isn't a Tudor in sight. <laughs> so how can it possibly work? <laughs> yes, I understand. And, um, On the other hand, we've got a great Richard. Got yes, a great, yes, yeah, Who was uh, George Martin's uh, model for the horrible boy king in Game of Thrones. So, well, yes, there you go. And, um, and what is it about the medieval period that seems to, you seem to have been drawn to? Well, I think the thing that my three historical novels, <laughs> is about, it, it's about England, really. They're all about England. They're all about when we're becoming what we have become. And the one is, the first one is becoming, seeking out to become a unity after the Romans had left. The Romans left in 412. Uh, 512, 612, 712. We talked about 250 years before a unity began to come, a really, and the kingdom came from the kingdom of Northumbria. And that was fragile in a way, but it still, it began. Then Alfred took it up and it began. And then, of course, um, the Normans uh, wrecked it, but then it crept through again. And I think the creeping through again is, so that was credo was because that was when that began. I think the creeping through again was in the late 14th century when English began to be spoken again. Uh, and that was the big factor for me anyway. And that was around that. So it was to do with what the English people wanted. I mean, Jack Straw in this book, I cast him as someone, and this is uh, completely imagined, although Jack Straw is not imagined, um, that he, he saw what was going on. He saw that they were being ruled by French people. All they wanted to do was to go fight other French people. Nothing to do with England. So I think that was a, that's a time in England when you could say the Civil War was more powerful. But this was a forewarning. This was look. This is it is coming through England. And then I think, in the nature of reason, it's one of the great intellectual arguments of of the last five hundred years: uh, the Enlightenment versus uh, versus uh, instinct uh, and a sense a sort of pantheistic sense of mystery remaining where the Enlightenment. It's a good balance and I found it and made it of it as a keystone for that. So maybe that's the connection, but I don't know. And I'm sure you might, well, I don't know if you're thinking this far ahead, are there any plans in the future you think to write another historical novel? Is that something you would... There might be, but, but this time, so way off track and nothing to do with this country. Uh, and it's just a little book I've fiddled around with for... 40, I think when you get to my age, what you do is you you remember the urgency with which you thought you should do things, and then you thought, well, I'll do the next thing. But this is something I wanted to write, um, and I started doing quite a lot of research on it. We'll see. And then I want to go. I want to write, if I if spared, I want to write. Uh, I want to write about my own time, uh, our times. I mean, it's I've lived through a transformation of this country in so many ways. And I, I don't want to write a documentary about it. 
because uh, I don't. And I don't write a memoir about it because I can't write memoirs. Uh, I get, get, I just get mixed up about when, who was what. I can't. People that rather make it up. And um, uh, I just want to do that. I don't know what it is yet, but it's been agitating me for quite a while. So be, when I turn to it and knock on the door, it might open. <laughs> Well, I'm sure we'll be all eager, eager to see. And um, and I suppose just to finish off, as have you got any words of advice for budding historical novelists? Well, I think it's the same as everybody. So you've got, you, I would say, you've got to do something you really, really want to do because it's hard work. The, the first element in a historical novel is slog. You know, you've got to slog your way through stuff, and then you've got to do this strange self-shredding where you try to turn it into fiction. Uh, but there's slog in it, and you've got to do the slog. That was Melvin Bragg. Now is the Time is out now, published by Scepter. And you can hear more from Melvin on the BBC Radio 4 series In Our Time, hundreds of episodes of which are available on the BBC iPlayer Radio and as a podcast. And now we have a short advertisement break. Scandal, catastrophe and the rebirth of a world city. London's most famous diarist, brilliantly brought to life in one of the most turbulent periods in its history. Samuel Pepys, Plague, Fire, Revolution. Don't miss the largest ever exhibition chronicling the life of Samuel Pepys through his candid and witty diaries at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. To book tickets and find out more about this new special exhibition, visit rmg.co.uk slash peeps. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Before our next interview... Here's a reminder that our December edition is currently on sale. Inside this month's magazine, we have articles on Henry VIII's will, the luck of Richard III, the history of China, and the Loch Ness Monster, among other things. 
You can get hold of our December edition now in all good news agents and digitally. Our second interview this week is with the author Andrew Loney. He has just written a new biography of Guy Burgess, a member of the notorious Cambridge spy ring, which passed classified information to the Soviet Union during the Second World War and afterwards. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to Andrew to find out what new light he had to shed on this remarkable character. Tell me a little bit about Guy, about his, about his background to start off with, so we get a sense of who, who he was. Well, Guy Burgess is one of the so-called Magnificent Five, one of the Cambridge spy ring. Uh, he was born in 1911. His father was a naval officer. Uh, his mother was an heiress. Uh, and he came from a very privileged background. He went to Eton. Uh, he then won a history scholarship to Cambridge, where he took a first. Uh, and he then went to work for the BBC. And from the BBC, but at, uh, he moved to the Foreign Office and then on um, to work for MI5 and MI6. But he also um, had um, been recruited by the Russians as an agent in the mid-1930s, just after Kim Philby. And so he was, it sounds like he was from quite a privileged background. He was a sort of quintessential Englishman. What, I mean, it's probably the million-dollar question. What caused him to have been to sort of defect and go over to the Soviets? Well, as you say, this is the, this is the intriguing thing. Mm. Why did these men, who were in the heart of the establishment and who clearly loved the trappings of being part of it, betray it? And it, it is a complex question. I, mean, I devote quite a bit of time in the book to try and to understand it. And I think there were two factors. One is the, the what I call the political revolt, the fact that, particularly with Burgess, he was attracted to Russia. He thought there were going to be two big power blocks in the 21st century. Uh, the British Empire was dead. It would be America and Russia. Uh, and he thought that Russia would be the dominant power. So he wanted to be with the winner. I think there's also the personal element. And I think what we can see is this uh, very sensitive child uh, and this, in some ways, because he didn't have any boundaries, he was spoiled. He came from uh, his father was away, and then actually died when he was thirteen. He had a very strong relationship with his mother, but he was never really disciplined. There were no boundaries, and I think as he went through school and university, there was a, a, a whole series of, of disappointments and resentments grew. Yeah. And I think he was looking for a cause. He was a rebel without a cause, yeah. and this gave him the cause. Something, and I think he loved this running with the hare and the hounds that he could be in a sense, part of something. I mean, he used to lecture at the Foreign Office Summer School on the evils of communism, so he knew exactly what it was all about. But he loved this idea of having these two lives. But actually, he he was quite a fan of communism, wasn't he? He he was... Well, he didn't like Russian communism. He wanted British communism. I mean, he was always telling people (laughs) he would join the British Communist Party, but not the Russian one. But yes, I mean, I think he, you know, he, uh, where a lot of people dropped out because of the Nazi-Soviet pact uh, and other things, he continued. I think he, he picked his football team and he thought he should stick with it. Yeah. Um, other members of the Cambridge Five um, have had, you know, quite a lot of coverage, you know, Anthony Blunt, you know. Um, why do you think um, Burgess has sort of, a, you know, you've, you've focused on him, but... For now, there hasn't been an awful lot on him. Well, this is the first first proper book on Burgess. Mm. Uh, Tom Dryberg uh, wrote as an authorised biography in 1956, which is a packet of lies. I think there's several reasons. One is that people didn't take Burgess seriously. Uh, They thought he was a joker, he was not very important. And I actually show that I think he was the most important of all of them, Mm. and a very serious and committed Russian agent who the Russians rated above all the others. 
I think the other thing was he died in 1963. He fled in 1950 from Britain to Russia in 1951. So there are very few people alive who would have known him. So very few people to interview. Uh, people like McLean, Philby and Blunt all died in the 1980s. So it's much easier to find people who remembered them and could talk. Yeah. Uh, Burgess never kept letters. A lot of people, because of his promiscuity as a homosexual and his, his reputation, distanced themselves from him. So it, you know, it was difficult. I think, it, it, I think if people were trying to, to do a book, and there was an attempt about um, 10, 15 years before this one, they gave up. But I think my great advantage was I started interviewing people in 1985, so it's been a long haul. Yeah. But of course, some people were alive there, and I just did basic journalistic trolls. So I went and found you know, people who'd been to school with him in the Foreign Office. Uh, I had two former lovers give me material, one of whom I traced to Tangier. So it was just basic sort of legwork. And then the other advantage was that stuff has been released, ironically more from the Russian archives and the British archives in recent years. So there has been a little bit to give us a sense of what they betrayed, what they gave away, because we've seen the the, the, the papers that were deposited and were given to the Russians. Yeah. Gosh, I mean, like you say, you started the book a long, long time ago, the, the, the groundwork for the book. Um, and what was the sort of sense of guy that you got from the people who actually knew him? Were there sort of, are there different, a different Yes, I've, I've written other biographies, and I've never come across someone who uh, generated such diverse opinions. Mm. There were some people who had no idea that he was gay, that he was a communist, really? that he drank. Uh, there were people who thought he was, and, and demonstrated how kind he was, and... Uh, what good company, how intelligent, and others, of course, who described him as dirty and manipulative and spoilt. So, I mean, I suppose we're all made up in different <laughs> facets, but no one, I think, was such extremes. Uh, and uh, he was, that's why I call it the lives of Guy Burgess, yeah. because he did, it wasn't just the uh, public lives, the, the, you know, the covert and overt, but he presented so many different faces to so many different people. Yeah which makes them a challenge for a biographer, but means that when you read the book, uh, a lot of people will uh, warm to him and others will, will not. Yeah, he did sound like a very... Yeah, a lot of different sides to him, definitely. Um, well, this is something I've always wondered, actually, anyway. How, I mean, how do you go about recruiting somebody to be a spy? How did the Soviets actually get to him and, and know about him? Well, the way it happened was that Kim Philby... They, the, the Russians had decided that they would have this this policy of recruiting bright young undergraduates at Oxford and Cambridge mm. who would go into positions of power as sleepers and that they would then activate and use. Uh, and so they'd been spending a lot of time through the embassy in London and, and, and various societies, friendship societies, and there were a lot of open organisations, the Common Turn, the Communist Party, um, targeting um, places that they wanted to pick up people. The way the recruitment actually happened was that Kim Philby went to Austria after he left Cambridge and became very politicised. He worked in the Austrian underground. This, of course, was the time of, of the rise of Hitler. Mm-hmm. And um, he then came, and he, by chance, met and married a, a Russian agent called Litzy Friedman. And he was then sent back to Britain and told to recruit some of his friends mm-hmm. uh, um, who had also been active communists with him. And Bert Burgess was on that list. Oh, OK, and so that's, that's how they got to know. And what did he... Um, was it something he was... You know, he immediately was attracted to do, or did yes. it take some persuading? No, I think they all loved it. They all loved, gave him a sense of, of power and responsibility and 
uh, you know, there's a certain frisson to it. Uh, I mean, Burgess, as a homosexual, a time when homosexuality was illegal, in a sense, had, you know, he enjoyed the frisson of doing something that was, that was illegal, and this was another illegal thing to do. Uh, so, no, I mean, they all, Philby's line was you don't turn down an offer to, to work for an elite organization, no. which is how he saw Russian intelligence. Presumably they were paid quite well, or were they not paid? I don't know. Well, they were paid a little bit, mm. um, not very much. They didn't do it for the money. Uh, <clears throat> so I mean, Burgess was actually paid the most of all of them, uh, and you know, they were really, you know, reasonable sums: two hundred and fifty pounds here, two hundred and fifty pounds there, which at that time was quite a lot. But that wasn't the reason that they did it. It was ideological. Right. Okay. Um, and from your research, have you actually have you found out? actually what he, he passed over to the Soviets? Do we know the information? Because he's already sort of, you know, been um, sort of labelled a bit of a joker, hasn't he? And the, the one who didn't maybe do... Well, well we know that for, he passed across over 4,000 documents. Right. And we've seen some of the documents because the Russians produced them. Uh, they, they had a deal with an American publisher in the 1980s to produce some of these documents in two books. So we do know exactly what, what they got. What we don't know is when the Russians got it, who saw it, and how they acted on it. Right. And one of the paradoxes of the whole thing is that Burgess produced so much material, he was bringing it out in suitcases, that they couldn't keep up with him. They couldn't translate it quickly enough. And because it was so good, they couldn't believe it was too good to be true. They thought he was a plant. So they, okay. didn't, they didn't believe it. So the poor man did all this work, yeah. and there's no guarantee that, that he did do anything. But I think there were several things he did. He was the, um, because he worked in MI5 and MI6, he knew all the personnel there, so mm -hmm. he could betray them. He also worked in a secret organization called the Information Research Department, which was a propaganda organization, which he helped set up, and he betrayed it immediately. He was a secret courier in, during the 1930s between Neville Chamberlain and Deladier, the French Prime Minister, during appeasement, and I think shaped attitudes to the point that the Russians felt that, you know, they, that the British and French would do a deal and that Germany would turn on Russia, and hence the uh, Nazi-Soviet pact. Mm. Uh, and then I suppose his really two crucial moments was when he worked in the private office of Ernest Bevan, the Foreign Secretary, immediately after the Second World War, during all the four power conferences, reshaping Europe, the future of Poland, NATO, all those things. He gave the, the Russians the British position before the British t uh, negotiating team themselves knew it. He was there during the Berlin air uh, um, lift. Um, so the Russians basically knew exactly what was going to happen. Uh, and then during the Korean War, he was in the Far East Department. He was able to tell the Russians exactly what um, the British and American position would be, how far they would go to fight, which parallel they would go to. So when people say he doesn't have blood on his hands, he has a lot of blood on his hands. And I think, you know, was absolutely crucial in ch changing post-war history. For example, the fact that the British recognised Red China. Uh, when the Americans didn't. It was largely down to his influence. These actions, um, they went across a long period of time as well, didn't they? The Second World War into the Cold War. Um, yes, he was recruited in 1935, mm. and he was active until he left in May 1951. And then, in fact, in Moscow, over the next 12 years, he, he actually helped advise the Russian Foreign Ministry on propaganda, on interpreting events, in what they call disinformation measures. So he helped produce um, material that was fake. 
to send out fake, you know, f- fake foreign office documents, things like that. So because as you know, he, he really knew how the foreign office worked, so he was able to tell them all sorts of things and, and let them put out all sorts of mm. fake material. Did anyone suspect him from you know early on? Was he was he trusted? Because he you know he did you know he was quite a, he did quite a few things, didn't he? That perhaps um, the word that to describe him, but he was you know quite indiscreet, wasn't he? In well, he was terribly indiscreet, mm. and he did used to tell people he was a communist agent, but no one believed him because <laughs> I mean, no communist <laughs> agent would say that. No. Uh, I mean, he, people felt that he was dirty, that he was often unreliable. Mm. Uh, that he wasn't discreet. I mean, he talked to journalists. Um, uh, so there were real concerns about him. But I think the problem was he had very strong mentors who protected him. And I think the feeling was that he was he was a difficult character and he would be more trouble if you tried to get rid of him than if you tried to control him within the organisation. Yeah. So I think that's how he survived. But, I mean, he was disciplined in... I mean, he eventually was pretty much asked to leave the Foreign Office just before he fled in May 51. But he was disciplined the previous year for careless talk. Uh, he... Um, lots of people knew about him, knew him from school, and kept saying, no, we don't want to work with him. But somehow he always managed to get through. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, really, when you when you look back and you think, you know, I mean, some of the things you describe in the book, there's an incident in Washington, I think, when he was in Washington, um, the wife of... Um, well, he was very rude, yes. There was yes. a famous dinner party at the beginning of 1951 where the head of the... Well, not the head of... But various important officials at the CIA and the FBI came to dinner with at Kim Philby's house where Burgess lived. And he insulted them all, which was the last thing that, you know, that Philby <laughs> wanted. I mean, Philby got very cross with him because, of course, by... F- fleeing in the way he did. He was very close to Philby. He lived in the same house. And, of course, when he fled, suspicion was directed against Philby, and he, in fact, had to flee himself a few years later. Yeah. Were they friends, the two of them? Yes, they were great friends. Uh, they uh, had been friends at Cambridge. They'd both been at Trinity together. Uh, both had read history. Uh, they um, Burgess would go and visit Philby when he was posted to Turkey. Uh, Burgess, in fact, wanted to marry uh, Philby's mistress, they shared a woman called Esther Whitfield um, who lived with them in the house and she was Philby's secretary and lover and became a very close friend of Burgess and he wanted to marry her. Oh, right, OK. Um, he ends up in Moscow, doesn't he, eventually? Um, or sort of appears in Moscow. Um, how did that come about? How do we know? Because he sort of disappeared for a while, didn't he, for a few years? Well, he flees in 1951 and nothing is heard of him again until February 1956. Is that because he's found out? Because people start to, to know what he's up to? No, what happens in February... I mean, people know that he's... Well, the, the general public don't know exactly what's happened, no. but, but I think the Foreign Office and, the, and his family know that he's, he's a spy, he's gone to Russia. He's kept in a, clo- a closed city called Kubyshev, uh, until 1956, he's debriefed uh, and basically kept away from anyone in the West. And then they decide in 56 that it would be useful for improving East-West relations if they come clean about what's happened. Mm. So there's a press conference in Moscow and they read a statement. And from that point onwards, there's a bit more contact so people can come and visit him. And one of the fascinating things about Burgess is the range of friends he had. He had a lot of friends in the arts. So people like Lucian Freud and Frederick Ashton and Ian Forster and people like that. And so, for example, Graham Greene came and visited him in Moscow, Stephen Spender, uh, the journalist Jan Morris, uh, the artists Mary Fedden and Derek Hill. 
so he had this amazingly wide range of friends, George Orwell's another, Maynard Keynes. So uh, people did see him there. He was still um, followed by the Russian police. He was under curfew in his flat. He had his flats, flat was miked, and he had a, a boyfriend who basically reported back on his activities. So he wasn't free. Uh, but he was able to to meet some people. He went to the opera, uh, sorry, to the ballet, the Bolshoi. He would hang around Western hotels in the hope of seeing people. He was very lonely, and yeah. I mean, you can imagine Moscow in the 50s was not the most exciting place. No, I mean, how was he seen by the, the Soviets? Because he must have been a little bit in the middle of things, perhaps not quite trusted by the Soviets, but he couldn't go back. Well, exactly. Well, he 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 could have gone back. The the, the, the irony is that the British knew they didn't have a case against oh, okay. him. He had never admitted anything. He had never been interrogated. They had. Um, he'd just gone, so they uh, they couldn't have prosecuted him, and he knew that. And he was very keen to come back and to visit his aged mo- mother, who couldn't visit him. Mm. Uh, and in fact, at one point in, in the spring of 1962, there was a scare that he would come back, and the British very ostentatiously put, uh, said that he would be arrested if he arrived, the, and um, a warrant was, was made out for his arrest uh, in a way to try and bluff him not coming back. But the fact is he, he, he didn't have a passport. The Russians weren't going to let him go back because, of course, he knew quite a lot about how they operated now. Mm. So he was stuck there. It suited everyone to leave him there. And what about his relationship with the rest of the, the, the five um, well, I think the irony, he's always grouped with Maclean. He didn't really know Maclean at Cambridge. They had nothing to do with each other during their careers. It was only the chance that Maclean was, had been busted, in effect, by uh, this, these Venona decrypts, and that he was, they needed someone to escort him, uh, to basically exfiltrate him, mm. uh, and they needed someone he knew. They couldn't use a Russian. So Burgess was brought in for that task. Burgess himself was a burnt-out case. He was about to be sacked. Uh, the Russians realised they needed to pull him in as well. So the two sort of went together. And mm-hmm. Burgess was, I mean, possibly tricked. He possibly thought he was going to come back, uh, you know, having taken McLean halfway and yeah. um, escorting him. Uh, so that's the irony. When they were in Moscow, they hardly saw each other. They were very different characters. McLean was very serious. He got a, a, a serious job there. His wife and family joined him. Uh, Burgess... Was you know a drunk? He was gay. They were very different, Um, and so though they're joined in by name, they actually had very little to do with each other. And when he died, Burgess, he left uh, stuff to Philby, but not to McLean. Right. Okay, that's interesting. Um, Do you think there's still stuff to find out about Burgess? Of course, absolutely. I mean, we're we're going to see 250 files on Burgess be released shortly in in the National Archives, and I'm sure that's only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, There's clearly reams of material still in the Russian archives, and that's the stuff that the British and the the Russians know about. Um, uh, You know, I live in hope of finding, you know, documentation and papers in the way that I found out the sixth man, Wilfred Mann, in the private papers of Sir Patrick Riley. I'm hoping, as I keep the files going, that I will find new things, or new yeah. people will, will come forward. I mean, already since the book's come out, I've had relations of some of the individuals in the book come forward with little bits of information, okay. Okay. which has been great. Tell me a little bit about the, the sixth man that you mentioned in the book. The sixth man is a man called uh, Wilfred Mann. Mm-hmm. He was the atomic um, uh, expert, in, he was a scientist, in the embassy in Washington. He worked alongside McLean, Philby, and then Burgess, and literally mm-hmm. almost the next-door offices. And he'd been named before in... Uh, 
Andrew Boyle's book, Climate of Treason, the book that exposed Anthony Blunt. And Mann at the time, he didn't sue for um, uh, uh, libel, but he uh, claimed that he wasn't a spy, and no one really pressed it. And it was only really by chance that I came across this reference in Riley's paper saying that, this, that he was called Basil. Um, Basil was, was Mann's middle name. That Basil had been caught uh, as a Russian spy and he'd been turned and what they call played back. So he'd been used as a, as a triple A or double agent. Uh, and I think that was one of the reasons why they rather kept it quiet in 79. Because I didn't think at that point the Russians realised that he had been feeding false information back to them. What, what was the reaction as well, public reaction, um, when it was finally sort of revealed that who, who Burgess wasn't, who, who the other five were actually as well, um, and you know what they? Well, had done. I think there was great. Sh- I mean, there was, it, it's it's been a you know a front page story really for the last you know fifty years. Yeah. Um, you know the fact that the, the, they still generate an awful lot of publicity. Um, and the public discovered only about a week after they fled. The Foreign Office said nothing about it, and it was front-page news, and it remained in, uh, front-page news, really, for about two or three years. I mean, there were thousands of policemen combing, looking for them. There were sightings all over the world, and bizarre sightings where they couldn't <laughs> possibly be. Uh, people were arrested who were completely innocent. So there was complete sort of hysteria. The, the Daily Mail spent £10,000 on um, bringing investigators. There was a water diviner used to work out where they were. Um, Burgess's brother, uh, sorry, boyfriend, was sent off to look around their old haunts in, in Paris in case he might be in one of the bars. I mean, even months afterwards. I, I mean, the whole thing became, you know, extraordinary. I mean, it was very good for newspaper circulation. Mm, <laughs> and there were lots and lots of cartoons and lots and lots of coverage. I mean, the, the, the files, I mean, the newspaper cuttings on, the, on them, are, well, I've got suitcases filled with them. Right. But the, there was then a white, a white paper a few years later, which was called the Whitewash Paper. And that really, again, didn't really say much. It didn't show that Burgess had actually been a spy for the British. Uh, it downplayed their significance in terms of access to secrets and their roles. That was Andrew Loney. Andrew's book, Stalin's Englishman, The Lives of Guy Burgess, is on sale now, published by Hodder and Stoughton. And that's pretty much it for this week. But please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about Shakespeare with James Shapiro, while Julie Checkaway will be discussing some heroic swimmers from the mid-20th century. It's an episode that you won't want to miss. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.